Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Resonance Test. I'm your host, Kenji Ross, from EPAM Continuum. If you were to somehow transport famed philosopher Sir Francis Bacon from the 17th century into the EPAM Continuum offices in Boston, he'd probably be confused by a lot of things. Light bulbs, indoor plumbing, elevators, the sub shop downstairs, the lack of British rule. But what he might find familiar is our use of rigorous experimentation for our clients via the application of the scientific method, smart hypotheses tested with clear goals. Stefan Tomke is an author and professor of business administration at Harvard Business School. His newest book is called Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments. Today, on The Resonance Test, Tomke joins EPAM Continuum Head Chris Mashad to talk a little about Sir Francis Bacon, father of empiricism, but mostly about the simple yet complex role of experimentation in organizations. It's not enough to just start testing some things, he says. You need to build an organization that cultivates curiosity and values surprises. Leaders need to build frameworks that give direction to experimentation, provide systems and resources for employees, and most importantly, build trust in their results by making sure the tests are good enough for everyone to truly believe in. We're not just talking about an attribute of successful business, it's an entire business alignment. As Tom Key says, after more than 25 years of study in this field, experimentation is the engine that drives innovation. If you're not experimenting, you're not innovating. How can you build a company that truly values experimentation? Let's find out. Stefan, thank you so much for giving us some of your time and, and joining us today for, for a podcast conversation. You've written so many compelling pieces on the importance of experimentation with regards to creating new products, new services, new businesses, just really kind of at the heart of innovation. And in your newest book, Experimentation Works, um, you encourage organizations to ask themselves seven questions about the experiments they plan to run. I would love for you to talk a little bit about uh, how, do, how do organizations respond to that when you provide that kind of guidance and advice? Well, for, first of all, Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, uh, you know, of course, I, I love to talk about experiments. Uh, you know, one of the first important distinctions that I usually have to make when I speak to organizations about experiments is the word experiment itself. You know, in the conventional, you know, English language, uh, the word experiment means really I'm trying something and it's often not associated with something that's much more disciplined, which is what I'm talking about in the book. I'm really talking about a very, very disciplined process that very much it has its roots in the scientific method, which, by the way, you know, in 16, 20, 400 years ago, were like what was really the starting point. Uh, Francis Bacon wrote a really interesting book called Novum Organum, which again became the bedrock of the scientific method. So, so the first surprise is uh, often is, oh, wow, okay, uh, th- there are actually a lot of things that we can do to make experiments more rigorous, which means that we can learn a lot more from these kinds of experiments rather than kind of the casual way of speaking about them. Uh, you know, an experiment becomes an experiment, you know, after something fails. And, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, but this is really more like at the outset, you know, we begin 
and we have a learning objective and 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 they're they're just like you said you know there are seven things you need to pay attention to make them better and i would love to go into a little bit more depth on on uh, scientific method and failure and and failure yeah you just mentioned something that gets attached to something after after you try something it doesn't work i can i share a little bit about um, my perception on some of what's going on within corporate worlds these days when, with regards to failure and then perhaps ask for your your input on it or kind of sure. seeing. So, so I'm a big scientific method guy. Uh, absolutely love it to its core. And for me, scientific method, every, every step is as important as the next. So really making sure you're understanding the right question, doing your research, getting to a, a proper hypothesis, and then running the experiment and and assessing the learnings from that experiment. So, so what I've seen embraced inside uh, a lot of organizations is this notion of many, many ideas and many, many experiments. But it, I don't see as much time being given to the, the depth of making sure you're asking the right questions and the depth of the analysis on the other side. So I've, I've seen a great push towards accepting, you know, it's okay to fail but I haven't seen as much of a push to make sure that you're learning everything you can from each failure. Have you seen that as well? Um, I, I very much agree with you, Chris. And uh, you, you can actually run bad experiments. I mean, it's often not clear to, to, to organizations. Uh, and an experiment is an experiment really where you learn nothing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it starts, I mean, one example would be that, that you mentioned would be the, the ability to write a good hypothesis. And uh, that's where it begins. And, uh, you know, we may have had a few classes, maybe in high school or so, about hypotheses. And, but quite honestly, by the time, you know, uh, you start to work, you, you kind of forget about it. And uh, so what is a good hypothesis? What is a strong hypothesis and what is a weak hypothesis? You know, folks, I mean, so what I do usually in the book, I, I, I break it down into sort of various pieces here. You know, where, do, where does a strong hypothesis come from? You know, what about the variables? What, it, what does it need to sort of to do? And uh, I'll give you uh, perhaps uh, some examples. You know, uh, I have an example in the book actually from a company named Kohl's, which we all know. We probably all sort of went shopping there. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a really interesting example because uh, – Kohl's uh, decided that they needed to decrease its operating cost. And uh, one of the suggestions that came in was to, to open the stores an hour later on Monday through Saturday. And, uh, you know, it's very easy to do the analysis. I think any first-year MBA can kind of run the numbers and figure out how much money you would save. But that was really not the difficult question to answer here. The hard question is, would it actually affect buyer behavior? Would sort of the loss in revenue you know, offset any savings that you have in operating costs. And so how do we normally sort of make these kinds of decisions? You know, we can run some spreadsheet models. We we can hire a consultant. I mean, there are lots of things we can do. Uh, but at the end of the day, we don't know. And uh, so they decided to run an experiment or a set of experiments, uh, rigorous experiments, that basically then gave them the confidence to do that because the experiments showed that, uh, that there was a negligible effect on revenue. The reason I'm mentioning this is that they actually had a really crisp hypothesis. You know, the variables were very clearly defined. Uh, they defined, they had a prediction 
you know, and and so on and so on. And uh, so that's usually when it begins, you know. So 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 a good hypothesis here was clearly that you know you know a, a change in in operating hours, you know, by one hour uh, would have no impact on store revenue. You know, a bad hypothesis would be, for example. You know, our brand can go up market or something like that. It's not a hypothesis. It's not something you can really test. So a hypothesis has to have quantifiable metrics. It has to have a prediction. It needs to be, you know, you need to be able to show that it's false and so on and so on. So that's just one example, Chris. Uh, the ability to write a really good hypothesis that's very precise, that's often missing. I, I think it's a great example. And in those examples, I think when organizations like embrace the power of experimentation in that way, it helps them get unstuck. It helps them get out of the analysis paralysis of, of trying to figure it out on a spreadsheet or think through all the possible scenarios and, and rather just run a couple really good experiments. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more of like in your research, where do you, where do you see the culture of experimentation that where, like, where does that really take over? Where do you see companies doing an, a really good job of embracing experimentation? Like you mentioned in the book about bookings.com, their, their CEO apparently had, had arrived and presented a logo to, to the team. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the team responded like this great, uh, this great response, like, it looks great. Why don't we check it with an experiment? Um, that organization sounds like it has fully embraced, but Maybe you can talk a little bit about the culture of organizations that have embraced this experimentation mindset and perhaps ones that haven't. Yeah, that's a great example, Chris. I mean, in fact, I find that it's often the, the cultural sort of challenges that are that are the hardest rather than the tools and the infrastructure. Uh, I, I can give you a few examples of the kinds of things that, that, that I've found are necessary to make this work at a cultural level. Uh, it starts with what I call cultivating curiosity. And if you don't have curious people in an organization, you're not going to experiment. And uh, so it, it has to happen from the leadership on down. We need to value surprises, even when it's really difficult to assign a dollar figure to them. And we don't often know sort of what will happen. And so you need to recruit for curiosity. Uh, you need to, again, cultivate it when people do join your organization. And, and, and have people that will see failure as not as costly mistakes, but as opportunities for learning. And uh, so that's one thing. The, the next thing that I found is to insist that data trump opinions. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have an open mind, if, I mean, if, if the decision has already been made, sort of what needs to be done, why experiment? I mean, what's the point of it? And, uh, and it's really, this, this is really difficult, Chris, because human nature gets in the way. We tend to happily accept good results, which are confirming our biases, right? But when we see something that's, in quotes, bad, we challenge and thoroughly investigate them because it goes against our assumptions. So so we need to kind of in, instill that as well. We need to insist that data sort of trump this. And, and by the way, it doesn't mean that we always need to do exactly what the data says. There may be legal or strategic reasons why, do, why we don't want to do it, but at least the data kind of brings honesty in the discussion. Then, Chris, a third one, and, and I'll stop because I have, I have many things that I've written about democratizing experiments. It says, if you have a lot of red tape in an organization, uh, it's not going to happen. So people need to be empowered to run these experiments. Uh, 
They need to have templates. It needs to be done with minimal effort. We need to have processes. Uh, senior management needs to trust them. You know, you mentioned booking.com, for example. At that company, anybody in a company can launch an experiment on millions of customers and they don't need management permission. And about 75% of sort of the core sort of uh, team there, it's about 1,800 people in Amsterdam, are actively sort of using their experimentation platforms. And so there's, these are just three examples of what you need sort of culturally here. And, and what also I think what's also important is you need to embrace a different leadership model. So the question is, what's the role of leaders in this kind of a model here? And, and again, I, I sort of in the book, I describe three different things. You know, one is uh, to set a grand challenge. That is, we need to make sure that people don't just experiment willy-nilly, uh-huh. that, uh, that there's sort of a purpose behind it, like the very best customer experience in the industry or something like that. They can be broken down into hypotheses and KPIs. And second, to put to place systems in place, systems, resources, organizational design. And the third one, Chris, is to be a role model. That is, uh, have humility, go into a meeting and just tell people, I don't know, but let's do an experiment to find out. And the example that you just mentioned, uh, you know, with the executive going into booking and, and making a decision about the logo design, then also for an organization to push back and saying, well, uh, we're glad that you made this decision. Well, we'll we'll try it and see what happens and see whether you're right or not. <laughs> so, uh, so, So these are just some of the things that are necessary to make this culture work. Yeah, it's. Um, I thought it was such a great example, and the and the way you've unpacked it. Even, I know you, there's more, but the, the three that you shared: cultivating curiosity, data trumping opinions, and democratizing experimentation. Clearly, Booking.com has done that, and oh, and, yeah. and and that's evident just in that single example where, you know, a CEO coming in saying this is the right the right brand direction for us, and and the staff and the team saying, um, you know, being curious, perhaps it is but also recognizing that data will, will help confirm um, and feeling empowered to be able to, to run that experiment. Uh, I'm curious, did it end up being the right one or did data tell us otherwise? <laughs> Never found out. <laughs> Never found out. Uh, well, the, 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 actually, that executive didn't stay that long either. So, Oh, well, maybe, maybe they weren't ready to truly embrace. Uh, the- I, I think the culture was ready. Maybe he wasn't. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know how the story then ended, but they certainly pushed back because they already had that culture. But what's interesting is in that vein, you know, I had this discussion with uh, one of the senior leaders. There's actually a number two guy at the time, David Wismans, and super smart guy. He was the chief product officer, and and I asked him sort of about advice. You know, he's been at this for a long time, and what he told me is interesting. Is he said. Here's sort of the advice that I have. He said, this large-scale testing is not a technical thing. He said, it's a cultural thing, and you need to fully embrace it. And in the conversation, he raised two questions. And, and I just wanted to, uh, Chris, uh, maybe just to, uh, to mention those two questions sort of to your listeners, because I think they're really important. The first one, the first question that he raised is, how willing are you to be confronted every day by how wrong you are? The second question he said, and how much autonomy are you willing to give to the people who work for you? He said, if if the answer is no to any of the two questions uh, that you don't like to be proven wrong, you don't want employees to do this, uh, it's not going to work. Yeah, those are those are great questions for an organization. Um, 
One that I've been I've been curious to ask you about in, in the new in your newest book, you, you talk about companies running tens of thousands of experiments. In in your view, is there a downside? Is there a risk of too much experimentation? Oh yeah, it could be. I mean, if you're not ready for it, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, having the the ability to run so many experiments means also that you need you need to be able to feed this apparatus with good hypotheses. You have to imagine when you're running tens of thousands of experiments. I mean, you need to. You know, that means they're running hundreds of experiments each day. How many organizations do you know that can come up with hundreds of hypotheses, good hypotheses every single day? So you need to build, build that capability, right? So you've got stuff coming in on a, in a steady flow. So that's kind of one of the first challenges. Then you also need to be able to process all the results. I mean, again, you know, you, you're getting lots of feedback, lots of learning sort of coming back. If you cannot process that as an organization, you'll, you'll end up being completely overloaded. And so... As a result, Chris, you know, organizations don't really go to that kind of scale overnight. I mean, this is the outcome of years and years of uh, building capabilities uh, where you, you gradually increase the number of experiments that you run, and then you make sure uh, that your organization can actually keep up with it. They can actually process all the learning. And so you got to be careful, you know. So this is an example where it's great to hear data that kind of supports your your personal experiences. Uh, it's why, Stefan, I love I love speaking with with people who like yourself are thought leaders in in a category like this and have the years of experience researching this stuff because that's been what you just described has been very much um, my practical experience of being in the industry for twenty plus years. And um, I've seen this migration towards uh, people more embracing experimentation, but in some ways, like the digital world enables us to run many, many, many experiments. And, and with that, it seems like there, there are instances where the thoughtfulness that goes into hypothesis as well as analysis um, is being a little bit shortchanged. And it, it sounds like maybe you've seen some of that through your work. Yeah. In fact, I, w- I was at a conference once and there was a speaker from, from the gap, which was really interesting. And he, he spoke about uh, their transition from, uh, from a system of where they actually ran experiments, but the quality was not very good to a high quality sort of environment. And he said, the problem that they faced is when they ran these low quality experiments is that nobody in the organization trusted the results. Mm-hmm. So they completely ignored them. So, so even though, so they ran, they ran quite a few tests, but people just were, were, you know, because they didn't trust them, you know, they were not acting on, on what was sort of coming out of these experiments. And so they needed to really work hard on getting the quality of the experiments up and build trust in the organization before they could even sort of focus on scale. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so you know our work, Stefan, from, from the years that you've known, known the team. Oh, yeah. And you appreciate we're kind of you know we're we're often involved in the very front end of things the the front mm-hmm. end of innovation and design work and, and as such like a lot of our hypothesis development comes from like just really deep consumer insights qualitative research um, which I know you talk a bit about in the book mm-hmm. the other piece of work that we do a lot of a lot um, we exert a lot of energy and resources against is when we're getting ready for those early experiments, those early tests, we invest a lot of time in getting the 
the prototype fidelity right. Um, Because you obviously don't want to overbuild before you get proven that you're wrong, you know, because you have to accept that you may be wrong. But you also have to build it well enough that it supports the experiment that you've designed. Um, You didn't talk too much about prototyping in your in your book, your most recent books. I'm just curious if there was a reason for that or if you have a, a thought on prototyping. I'd love to hear them. Well, there's a simple reason, Chris, is because I wrote a whole book on that in 2003. <laughs> <laughs> and it was the book was called Experimentation Matters. And, and most of the book is about exactly that. Okay. And uh, a lot of prototyping, mostly in manufacturing-based environments. And, uh, and it gets exactly into the kinds of issues that you just spoke about, you know, fidelity and you know, how much fidelity you want to put in these prototypes. You know, sometimes you can actually put too much fidelity into them. And, yes. uh, but it's, it's hugely important in this experimentation journey. And, and by the way, what's also important here is we need to sort of think about the topic about experimentation in general. I mean, you know, the book talks in part, sort of the new book talks about A-B testing. I mean, that's just one kind of experiment, but there are many kinds of experiments that you can run uh, at various stages uh, in product development, uh, such as early stages, where you don't have sort of the level of precision yet, you don't have the sample sizes to do the sorts of things that I just spoke about, you know, in Booking.com's case. And their prototypes are great and uh, because it allows you to explore, it allows you to get feedback. And uh, uh, but, but as you said, you, you got to get the prototypes right. You got to put in just enough fidelity uh, that you get a, a good answer but sometimes not too much. You know, there's also the risk of overcommitting to a prototype. We actually put more into it uh, than sort of uh, the, than than where you really are in the process. I've seen that too, Chris, where you know uh, companies build beautiful prototypes that look like you know manufactured products at the end, and 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 the customer saw it and 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 they got locked in as well. And so you know, once 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 the customer saw it and they wanted to have it tomorrow, so. Uh, yeah, getting it right is uh, is at some point an art, and, and I know that you guys do a really great job at it. You know, I've seen it myself. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, we've invested it's you know thirty five years of experience and constant learning and evolution, um, and I I don't you know there'll be no end to that. Uh, the way that we can experiment, the way that we can prototype, keeps evolving and changing. It forces us to keep evolving and change how we do it, but it we're very mindful of it for for a lot of the reasons that you've brought up. Um, Getting that fidelity right, uh, not overinvesting, um, not falling in love with your idea too early because it may be wrong. There's a very good chance it will be wrong. Uh, those are the things that we, we definitely try to embrace. Um, so you've been very generous with your time. I, I guess if I could put you on, I'll ask you one last maybe challenging question, and I, um, <laughs> but I'm sure you'll have a great, great response given your background. So as you go into organizations and uh, they they want to get to a place where they're better at driving innovation or, yeah, let's keep it at that level, better at driving innovation into the market, um, where do you start in that conversation with them in terms of advice that you provide? Well, when I go in, I mean, the first question, and it's based on sort of my experience, I've been at this for more than 25 years now. Is, is, you know, and I get this question, by the way, Chris, a lot sort of, you know, how, how good are we in innovation, you know? And so I, I always ask them, show me the experiments. Because if, if there's one thing that I learned in those 25 years is that experimentation is the engine that drives innovation. If you're not experimenting, you're not innovating. 
And so let's let's show it to me. And uh, and so we can have a really interesting discussion, uh, sort of in about sort of where they are experimenting. You know, are they running small experiments, big experiments? Why are they experiments? What are the questions that you're asking yourself? And then, of course, I look at resources as well. Are, are you actually spending on it? You know, it. it I, I've seen this quite a bit. You know, where you know CEOs get really excited about innovation and they tell everybody to be innovative, but there are no budgets available. So can't do it i mean you got to put some serious resources into these kinds of things uh, there's a lot that we know about sort of what you need to do to get this right uh, innovation is not easy uh but uh, but it's kind of amazing then when when you see companies fully embracing it you know, in terms of process organization management and culture all the different aspects of it and how much you can move you know of sort of the the, the results that you can achieve you know once you get serious about it and so it's pretty amazing i mean i uh it, it reminds me uh uh of, of a little story i don't know if we have another minute or so chris Absolutely. Uh, there was uh, the story which uh you know at, at the end of the day you know always comes back to a steve Jobs story <laughs> <laughs> you know uh but but he he was kind of an interesting really interesting uh uh character i suppose uh, but there's sort of a question that uh, Walter Isaacson sort of asked him, you know, for for his biography and about sort of what he learned in his in his life and so forth, and and uh, and whether you could put it in a sentence. And then uh, I think Steve Jobs said, you know, well, it's actually two sentences, and the first sentence I was right all along. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But then he had a second sentence, and he said it's only three words. It says products are everything. And of course, by products, I think what he meant to say is customer experiences, which are two sides of the same coin. And, uh, but the statement products are everything, I think is really powerful because uh, if if you're great at this, right, if you really create super, I mean, kick-ass customer experiences, you can be average in a lot of things. You can be average in marketing and finance, whatever it is. Uh, But if your product or customer experience, if it sucks, you know, there's no amount of marketing or finance is going to save you in the long run. So when you think about sort of where you focus, you know, look at your calendars. I mean, how much energy and how much time do you actually spend on making sure that you've got great products or great customer experiences? That's a sort of a, a fundamental question uh, that I think uh, a lot of sort of leaders have to ask themselves. And by the way, there was a recent interview with Elon Musk. Uh, with, with sort of a Wall Street Journal, which I came across just actually just about a week ago or so. And uh, he said exactly the same thing. He said, you know, boy, you know, CEOs spend way too much time with PowerPoints in conference rooms and so on. They need to really spend more time thinking about their products and uh, and to make them right. So that's uh, so. So these are the kinds of things that we talk about, Chris, when we talk about innovation. Those are those are mu- all musical things to my ears. Um, I'm one who had loved product. It's why I'm in this business. It's where I, you know, and I mean product in the broadest term. Um, and absolutely, it, it is much more wise um, and a better investment to have spectacular products than spectacular marketing. Um, it's hard to market a, a mediocre product and, and move your way to long-term success. It's an awful job. I mean, imagine. <laughs> Terrible job. I would not want that one. Yeah. Um, so, Stefan, this has been amazing. I think I could hang out and talk with you all day. Uh, and I actually, I'm going to put, I'm going to maybe end our conversation with that. 
EPAM Continuum integrates business, experience, and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. At EPAM Continuum, we're very deliberate about the term innovation. For us, it means turning ideas into stuff that's real. Because from our perspective, ideas aren't really innovative until they exist. Thanks are due to our guest, Stefan Tomke, for an empirically excellent conversation. He was interviewed by EPAM Continuum's fearless leader, Chris Mashad. Our producer is Ken Gordon. Kip Palalis is our sound engineer. And I'm your host, Kenji Ross. Until the next one, thank you. <laughs>